0: X-ray to Joshua and uh, Judges, um, well, at least my journey group had so many questions about some of those books. If you're just joining us as a church, we're reading through the scriptures uh, throughout this whole year. I'm preaching on different sections of the scripture as we get to them. Today we'll be in the book of Ruth and uh, we are super excited about doing that together. And like the analogy that we've been using, the working analogy is this, uh, you show up late to the pool party you just jump in. Like, you don't wait. Just go ahead and get in the pool. It's fine if, if you're just out joining. If you are, uh, if you're behind in your reading, that's okay. This is meant to help you engage with the Lord, not give you an extra pin. Uh, in Christianity, you know, you're not going to get a, a sash with badges after this. This is just helping you engage with the Lord and so jump right in. On the back of uh, the order of worship, you'll see what's coming up ahead. I'm just going to highlight this one more time because people were coming in and moving when we uh, had this video at the beginning of the service. Today's Palm Sunday, obviously. Monday, Thursday, we'll have um, a video, a worship and music video on our YouTube channel. The idea there was that you could get together as family and friends in your neighborhood, and watch that video and uh, celebrate that together Uh, good friday service uh, back here at seven o'clock in the sanctuary and then a different change in worship uh, for next week 6 45 sunrise service right there in the parking lot bring your own coffee bring your own chair bring your own blanket bring your own bible bring everything you need except for me Um, I'll bring myself and a message, and Jared will bring his guitar. Uh, 9 o'clock in the sanctuary, 10.30 in the sanctuary, and 11 o'clock in the fellowship hall. And we will have uh, coffee and donuts spread all throughout the building uh, and between times so that you can celebrate and uh, mix and mingle with everybody. So we look forward uh, to this next week. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in. Father. You are such a good God to us. You are in the midst of us. Uh, You help us when we are struggling, when we are uh, drowning in our sins, in our doubts, in our struggles. Uh, Father, you are sovereign. You are providential. There's not a square inch of this world uh, that doesn't belong to you. And uh, you knew that we had a problem. You had the dilemma that you're a holy God. And you're also a merciful and loving God. And that dilemma couldn't be solved by us. You had to find a way to solve it by sending your son, your only son. So that we would know uh, kindness and tenderness so that we would know what love looks like, so that we would know what forgiveness looks like, what humility should be about in this earth, so we would know how to honor and worship you, so we would know what things are major and what things are minor. And Christ, you said it is for our good that you must go, otherwise the Holy Spirit can't come. And so now you've given us the Holy Spirit as you are ascended, your Spirit who lives in us. So when we're convicted, that comes from you. And when we're uh, reminded of your grace and mercy, that comes from your Holy Spirit. And you guide us, and you direct us, um, even when we don't ask for it at times, Uh, you work through... Even the parts of our lives that are not the best to bring redemption, you work through our tears to bring triumph. And Father, we do pray there are a lot of people, um, even right now, who are grieving, who are hurting. Uh, There's a lot of pain in this world, not only locally in our own body, but around this world. And I pray, Christ, that you would show yourself to be relevant and the only king of kings. I pray that you would make us a congregation uh, where the spirit of your life resides, where there's joy and where there's laughter, where there's also honesty, where there's good, healthy confrontation because wounds from a friend can be trusted, where there's confession and where there's a forgiveness freely given, liberally, where nobody's canceled because of the cross of Christ. But we journey with people and we walk them in. We call people to holiness and godliness, and you help us as a congregation to encourage one another until you return. We pray all these things for our people. We pray in your name. Amen. I'll get to the text in a second, but this first point in the first little section is going to be background, and then we will... We'll get to the text. I don't know if you're like me or not, but I get really worried that people aren't going to show up. Uh, I get, uh, last week we had a new members dessert, and five minutes before uh, people showed up, I said to Elizabeth, what if nobody shows up? Like, what if we made all this dessert and it's just us here? Or what if it's even worse than that? Just two people show up. And then they can't figure out how quickly they can leave and have it count. And you have that awkward moment. Every Sunday morning, and I've told you this before, at about 8.30, I think, what if nobody shows up today? It's just me and the choir and the musicians. And how's that going to work out? What is that? What, What happens to that? When you read Ruth... The first three chapters, you should be asking yourself the question, is God going to show up? Because it sure looks like he's not involved with this. But the irony is, he's everywhere in this book. He's all throughout it, working together his sovereignty, working together his providence. And we know the end of the story, but we have to go there emotionally in the first couple chapters of the story because the earth is the Lord and everything's in it. And God always shows up. He doesn't put this world on cruise control. God's not asleep at the wheel uh, like some philosophers have said, he doesn't just wind up the clock and let it go and see how this world is going to work out. God is sovereignly and providentially in charge of everything. In other words, Christ has come, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. That's what we're going to celebrate this week. And as he came, he came with three things. And here's the title of the sermon. He came with tears, he came to triumph, and he came with Laughter. He came with tears, he came to triumph, and he came with laughter. Now, the text, the life situation is this. Naomi is married to Elimelech. She has two sons, Malon and Chilion. Like, I I don't know if that's the actual way you pronounce it or not, but it's always been my favorite way to pronounce it, Chilion. And I do think as we go through the Old Testament, we're missing a lot of great opportunities. They name our kids some of these things. Just consider it. They had two Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi lost her husband, lost her sons. And in that world, it's hard enough in this world, but that world, that is everything. Everything kind of ran through the males. And so she lost it all. And she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And she says to them, she gathers them together and says, this is the way this should work. Y'all probably should go back to your Moabite people, right? Because they'll be able to care for you. They have to care for you. Uh, you know, I'm a Hebrew. My people are not your people. Orper takes her up on the deal, and Ruth says, if you remember, she says, Oh, no, no, no. Where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God. Now, that's beyond just a a statement. What Ruth is saying at that moment, scholars believe, is this. She has now left not only her family, not only her Moabite culture, but she has adopted this covenantal God, Yahweh. She has now become a believer, and she wants to be and stay with Ruth because of that. She loved her mother-in-law and was willing to walk with her mother-in-law. She didn't represent what is my favorite bumper sticker in the history of bumper stickers, which I've told you about. I saw it on I-85, and I almost had to pull off. I was laughing so hard. The bumper sticker said, in case of rapture, this car will be empty, but please take care of my (laughs) mother-in-law. I mean, I just love that. And actually, I I had a great relationship with my mother-in-law, you know, so it doesn't apply. But just imagine going to Thanksgiving dinner with that on your bumper sticker. (laughs) Well, that was not, that was not Ruth. Naomi decided to go back to her ancestral homeland. You know where that was? That was in Bethlehem. They got to Bethlehem and just like a high school reunion, everybody came in and you know, saw her. She was back at her ancestral homeland. They said, oh, Naomi, we're so glad you're back. And she said, don't you, don't you dare call me that. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. I lost my son. I lost my other son, the weird named one. I lost my I lost my husband. I've got nobody to hold at night. I've got nobody's back to rub. I've got no chance of financial security. I've got nobody to watch over me. I've got none of that. Don't don't you dare call me Naomi. I'm bitter at God. I'm bitter at this world. I came to Bethlehem with tears on my face and this hanger-on Ruth that I don't know what to do with. That was the situation she walked into. And I'm going to hop and skip and jump because this actually really dovetails with the triumphal entry so well. Because in the triumphal entry, Christ came and he came with tears too. You know, one of the first things he did after he walked into the gates of Jerusalem, he saw Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you Under my wings, I am weeping for you. As he says in Luke chapter 19, if you only knew what would make for peace, God comes, our Christ comes with tears. He comes to be wounded for us. Have you ever thought about this? What this week, what we're going to celebrate this week, is that our God has wounds. He has wounds. And those wounds make him tender towards us because anybody who's been wounded in this life will either be bitter or they'll be incredibly tender. But our God came with these wounds. He knows our suffering. He knows our tears. He knows our pain. He knows our doubts, he knows our depression, he knows our abuse, he knows all of those things, and he weeps with us. We can't possibly celebrate the resurrection until we weep over Lazarus's grave. Both of those things hold together this week as we go through Good Friday all the way to Easter Sunday morning. We've gotta be a people who are willing to say, this isn't right. But our God, unlike other gods, our God knows what suffering is like. I, I had to read in high school. I don't know, if, I don't know what kids read in high school anymore. Um, I should check on that. My kids are in high school. Uh, but we had to read Elie Wiesel Night, a pretty famous book, and I'd studied Holocaust history for a, a good part of my college experience. And then Elie Wiesel, uh, he tells a story about this 13-year-old kid being hung on the gallows in a concentration camp. And the guy behind them in line, because they lined up the whole camp to watch it happen. And the guy behind them in line leaned up to Eli Wiesel and said, where's your Christ now? Now that 13 year old is swinging on that rope. Where would you say your God is now? And Ely said that question bothered him for years until years later he was meditating on the cross of Christ and he said, that's my God. He was on the gallows with them. He's a God who knows what suffering is. He's a God who knows what that's like. He's a God who knows what betrayal is like. He's a God who knows what it's like to cry. Now here's the point for us. Christ came with tears so you can embrace loss. And the the question is, what have you lost in life? Because we've all lost stuff. Everybody in this room has experienced probably differing levels of grief. Maybe it's your health. Maybe you lost your reputation. Maybe you lost your hopes. Maybe you lost your dreams. Maybe you lost your finances. Maybe you lost your kid. Maybe you're losing your parents. Maybe you lost love. I hate and love this song by Susan Ashton. She said, a tug of war is going on inside of me, a calloused heart that wants to make a change, while time prevails, fighting tooth and nail, keeping me set in my ways. Milton lost his paradise, Dorothy lost her way, Vincent lost his sanity, and Thomas lost his faith. Hoover lost a second time, and Sigmund lost his friend, but me, I lost my innocence. I want it back again. Look, we've all lost something in life. You know what Christianity allows you to do? It allows you to acknowledge that and not just cover it up and go to the lake, not just pretend like everything is okay and hunky-dory, not just kind of you know do another thing and, and distract yourself with another entertainment. Christianity allows you to acknowledge what you've lost in life and then look to see how God's gonna replace it. What God's going to do with that loss. Remember in Luke chapter 15, it's a parable of loss, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. But it also should be a a parable of looking. Because with the lost coin, what does the woman do? She clears out the room, lifts up the couch, and she looks for the coin. With the lost sheep, what do they do? They stop everything, leave the 99 behind, and look for the sheep. With the prodigal son, what does the father do? He stands on the hillside and looks. And once we acknowledge this is what we've lost in life, then we can start to look for how God will triumph, which is the second point. Christ came with tears, and here's the good news. Christ came to triumph. This story, we'll pick up in chapter four. Um, I'm just gonna read a couple sections of this scripture here, not the whole thing, but Boaz goes to the gate. Look at verse one of chapter four. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Uh, So he basically convened. He went to this gate area, and he basically convened a council, all the elders, all the beggars, everybody that was important to the city, catching them as they kind of came in. I'm gonna need you in a second. You're an elder here. We've got the contract that we're gonna have to validate. So let's get everybody here. That's what he does. Then they wait for the Redeemer. So the situation is this. The Redeemer would have gone, Ruth and Naomi would have gone to some kind of ancestral Redeemer, some person that was the next in line to have to take them on, although they weren't obligated to take them on. They could have left them orphaned. And the Redeemer shows up, this nameless Redeemer, verse 3. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I might know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I will come after you. Not I will come after you and get you, meaning I will come after you and redeem it. And he said, I will redeem it. So he says, look, the nameless redeemer says, I'll take the land. And I'm sure the elders in the background were kind of snickering. They don't know what's coming next. Verse 5. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of dead of his inheritance. In other words, let me summarize for it. Now that you've acquired Ruth, you're required to do everything you can to try to provide an heir and a descendant to keep this line alive, to keep this inheritance alive. And the Redeemer, verse 6, says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I can't redeem it. Let me summarize. The Redeemer comes, and the Redeemer says, Boaz says to the Redeemer, look, you you can take this piece of land. You have the rights to it. Uh, You also get thrown in Naomi. She's a little bit bitter, but we're working through that. And and you get this girl, Ruth. No knowledge of she's uh, pretty or not. No, this is not like an Esther story. There's no actually talk about that or not. But you are required uh, to try to provide an heir. So Naomi and Ruth will then have an heir of their inheritance. And the nameless redeemer says, I've got three kids. I'm making that up. I'm not sure how many he had. If I add four, I was going to divide my entire state 33%. Now I have to divide it 25%. And everybody's going to get really bitter. And it's not, the land's not worth it. The whole thing's not worth it. I don't want any kind of responsibility for this. And so this picture of this redeemer coming out, fearing that he was going to dilute his own stake. I'm going to just summarize this next little section. Boaz basically takes off his sandal as a sign uh, of this covenant agreement. You know, in that day, actually, we're not sure if this is exactly what's happening, but in that day, if you were buying a field, uh, somebody would stand there. And Let's say I'm buying the field, and you were selling the field to me. We would stand there, we would make the transaction, we would shake hands, and as we shook hands, I would step onto the field, and you would step off of the field. And that was the sign that the transaction was complete. So what scholars think, it was a little bit of a nod to what's happening there. But in the middle of this text, we see that Boaz redeems them, and Boaz takes responsibility for them. He triumphs over their tears, He triumphs over the selfishness of the nameless Redeemer. And he says, I am willing to take them and all their obligations, and I am willing and I am not obligated to. It is only because of his hesed, old Hebrew word for steadfast love. It is only because of his faithfulness. It is only because of his desire to take on this responsibility And fast forwarding to Palm Sunday, when Jesus trod into this world, he went through a gate as well with the beggars and the elders and the Pharisees, and he looked at them all and he said, you've loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And he triumphs in humility, and in humility, because of his steadfast love, he takes responsibility for us. Hey, look, there's a lot of people that say they love you or they like you or they care for you. But do they take responsibility for you? Not when you're at your best, but when you're at your worst. With all of your problems, with all of your pains, do they take responsibility at that moment? That's why I love this Donald McLeod quote. He says, Christ bears away the sin of the world by taking responsibility for it, suffering for it, and eventually dying for it. Christ doesn't turn a blind eye. What Christ does in your life and my life is he takes responsibility for it, he owns it. He takes all of our sin, all of our doubts, all of our struggles, and he triumphs over them. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture. You know, we had an officers retreat yesterday and I loved being with the officers of this church. We are uh, blessed people to have uh, these individuals helping lead and guide and direct and so thrilled to be uh, with them yesterday. We broke up into small groups and in one of the groups they said, "Um, what's, what's something that's keeping you from a greater intimacy with Christ? That was the question. And I said, for me, 130%, maybe 140%, it's shame. It's my shame. Feeling like if I go to him, he'll turn away. If I go to him, he'll wag his finger. If I go to him, he'll say, Andy, you could have done a lot better in this life. I don't know, I gave you everything to do well and you just mucked the whole thing up. If I go to him, I'm gonna feel all this shame And so sometimes I just don't go from them because I'm afraid I'm going to feel shame. But the reality is, when you look at the triumphal entry, that Christ was willing to come in and take responsibility for everything, and then on the cross, naked there, he took all of our shame. It's an invitation for wherever you are in your spiritual walk to repent and run back to him and enjoy him because he has redeemed you. Because it's triumphed, here's the application point for you, you can overcome. In this world, we feel overwhelmed, don't we? But what what Christ reminds us of all the time, when you're overwhelmed by the news, when you're overwhelmed by your health, when you're overwhelmed by the amount of decisions, Christ reminds us all the time, no, I've actually overcome. Let me read two verses, John 16. I've said these things to you that in me you will have peace, for in the world you will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. 1 John 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The reality is that Christ has overcome the world. You don't have to be overwhelmed in this life, and you don't have to live life overwhelmed. Why? Because God has redeemed you in Christ. He has showed up at the city gates and said, I'll take them, and I'll take everything that comes with them. What does it mean for Christ to have redeemed you? Do you hear about um, that girl in Ukraine? There's some stories I don't like telling, and this is one of them. The couple girls in Ukraine um, whose mom's two and a half, three years old, and uh, their mom's took uh, Sharpie pens and wrote on their backs their names and their uh, Ukrainian identification number and the next of kin and the next of kin phone numbers and their birth dates and what they like to eat. Wrote all that stuff on their back because there's a chance the parents were going to die and that two-year-old was going to be found on the street and nobody would know their name or know their next of kin or know how to redeem them. And so we better write all this stuff on their back where they can't wash it off and they can't rub it off. Let's put on—they're not going to have a shower anytime soon. Let's write it all on their back, so that there's a way that they could be redeemed. Well, you don't have anything on your back. I don't think have anything on my back. But when you look at the back of Christ, you see the wounds that prove that you've been redeemed. And when you start to doubt your faith, you look at the back of Christ and you say, no, he paid for that sin and he paid for that doubt and he paid for that shame. And when you start to feel that you're not that close to Christ, here's what I want to say pastorally, I don't care that you don't feel close to Christ. Look at his back. He's close to you. He knows you, he's not going anywhere. He's redeemed you, he's taking responsibility. Look at the back of Christ when you start to doubt. Look at the back of Christ when you start to wonder if he really, really does love you, if you haven't outlived his grace. Look at the back of Christ. On his back, you see your name written in his wounds. And then, lastly, Christ came with laughter. I want you to see this last part of the text, just 13 through 17. Let me read it. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. He went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. Is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became a nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed, for he was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Christ came with tears. Christ came to triumph, and Christ came with laughter. I mean, just picture this, if you can, in your mind's eye. The whole thing is a a baby shower of sorts. And all these women, I'm sure they were childhood friends of Naomi who had stayed in Bethlehem, show up at at the house that day and say, God's not left you without the kinsman redeemer. And now he's a restorer of life and a nourisher even for your old age. And the story that begins with Naomi Bitter ends with this little baby bouncing on her lap, cooing and giggling. And with her and Ruth kind of talking with them and doing all the baby sounds and people bringing over hummus and what other baby gifts you give jewish kids i don't know little dreidels and stuff and that's how the scene ends hey that the whole time the whole the whole four chapters the whole season of life and it's not just four chapters this is decades summarizing the whole thing god actually knew what he was doing he actually had a plan and it was going to end in their laughter and their redemption I know we don't always see that fully in life, but we see it here. And we see the humor of God, that Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the king. You know, most, uh, a lot of scholars, including myself, if I could put myself in that category for this purpose, uh, believe that Ruth was actually written as a political track because David was going to be king and people were going to say, He shouldn't be king. He's got a Moabite in his lineage. There's no way you can have a Moabite and be the king of Israel. And they said, oh, no, no, no. Let us tell you about this Moabite. She's unlike all the other Moabites. She actually is a covenant-keeping person who loved her mother-in-law more than any of you loved your mother-in-law. So David is validated. That's probably why the book was written. But it also ends with all this humor because Boaz's mom was Ruth. I mean, Rahab. It would be weird if it was Ruth. It was, it was Rahab, the prostitute. And, and so now we've got this woman, Ruth, the Moabite, and we've got Rahab, this prostitute, that are, are brought in with this humor into the line of David and into the line of Christ our king. And so the whole humor of Palm Sunday, the king of kings riding in on a donkey, is not just a display of humility. It is that, but it's also a display of the laughter of God. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I'm gonna work it all out in the end. And I think that's why there were so many kids around during uh, that time. Well, all of the kids were invited in, and palm branches doing that, and they would've been pushing each other. I mean, don't think this is gonna be some really nice and neat processional. It's not gonna be that at all. It's not gonna be nearly as nice and neat as ours was. They would've been pushing each other, and tripping each other, and laughing, and doing all this stuff, and Jesus welcomed them all in. And so he comes in, Matthew chapter 21, the blind and the lame came to the temple and they healed him. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that they did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. This is so unclassy to worship God that way, to let yourself go, just to shout and scream and be a kid again. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? I was talking with a pastor friend this week and uh, we were talking about our own spiritual lives um, at a wedding on Saturday. And uh, both of us kind of said, what we're both learning is that sanctification and spiritual growth is not about being a lieutenant colonel in the kingdom of God. It's about being a kid. It's about learning how to laugh and cry and ask for help and say we're sorry and tell our heavenly father when we're hurt and when we're hungry and to welcome others in with unabandoned because that's what kids do. You might remember the story, almost done, the story of Kate years ago. She was five and we were re-roofing <laughs> we re- the house, not out of joy. That's just what you have to do when you're a homeowner. It was time. And so we were re-roofing the house. And uh, it was lunch break. And all of these guys decided just to scatter. All these roofers scatter in my backyard. They were laying on my hammock. They were laying on the, they were all like these big beer bellies. I don't want to categorize or label anybody, but tattoos. And, you know, they just don't look like the kind of guys that you're going to see um, here necessarily although we would love that if we had more uh roofers here and uh, they had all they were pretty rough you know looking guys and uh, kate came up to me and elizabeth and said you think they'll play freeze tag with me <laughs> and we said you can ask and she went out little five-year-old kate went out there they're all like sleeping and eating their sandwiches and said do you guys want to play freeze tag and they did, the whole crew. They're out there running in our backyards, you know, these big guys with these beards and sleeve tattoos like, stuck, waiting for somebody to, <laughs> to come around and tap them. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to laugh and be a kid again. And because of the laughter and the humor and the humility of Christ's friends, you can relax. Like you used to do when you were two and fall asleep in your parents' arms. You can crawl into the arms of your heavenly Father and you can relax. Because God's sovereign and he knows what he's doing and he has a plan. Last quote and then we're out of here. I love this quote from Eugene O'Neill. He wrote a play, I don't know if you know his life, it's very interesting. He wrote a play called Lazarus Laughed and here it is. And then Lazarus knelt and kissed Jesus' feet, and both of them smiled, and Jesus blessed him and called him my brother and went away. and Lazarus, looking after him, looking at Jesus, meaning, began to laugh softly, like a man in love with God. <laughs> what a fen- if I could ever write just one sentence like that in my entire life, began to laugh silently like a man in love with God. Hey, that's the invitation this week. Go ahead and cry your eyes out on Good Friday. Go ahead and sit in in that. But then remember that Christ has triumphed. And at the end of this next week, friends, you can laugh silently like a man, like a woman, in love with the King of Kings. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now. Uh, that you would help us just to tap into all of these things. Thank you for the book of Ruth and the way that you show yourself to be faithful and kind and tender and allow us to see your wounds. May we encourage each other this week. We pray in your name. Amen.